All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 3. And I did something, everybody's asking me, I did something to my ankle. I don't even really know. Heather uh, Google diagnosed me, and we think we've got it figured out. Yeah. Yeah. It was, she slammed me up against the wall. and Keith shaking his head. He said, you should not have done that. It's okay. Everybody knows it's not true. The Lord hath not been quick to answer thy prayers. Yet I am relentless in my prayer life. <laughs> Malachi chapter 3. Let's go ahead and dig our way out of this hole. They are, aren't they? They are. So this morning we're going to finish up, hopefully, and I actually do think I'll finish this section through verse 15 of Malachi chapter 3 um, because it's really one solid unit, <clears throat> and we'll, we'll talk about uh, a few different things. One, we're going to talk about the way that God's people uh, in the Old Testament, and then we'll look at some New, new Testament, New Covenant application, the way that God's people were commanded to care for and uh, stay committed to God, God's plan, God's um, system, which is the temple system, and how they were to care for the poor and the widows, orphans, the workers, and so on and so forth. How, uh, the, uh, how it was to be imp an impartial system where everybody was cared for and no one was left out and no one was overlooked. He deals with oppression. And, and then the, we're going to talk about how that works in the Old Testament, which is through the tithe and through the giving to the, the, the Levites, uh, the tribe of Levi, through the priesthood to the temple, and then dispersed to whoever was in need. There were multiple tithes. We'll look at some of those. And, and then we'll talk about, uh, four, or thirdly, how that works in our relationship with God, what it means when we fail to operate in accordance with who God is and the standards that he set forth. And in, in that, we'll try to touch on how is there any carryover from the old covenant tithing system, um, giving system to the new covenant? I know that many of you grew up in church and you've always been told that you need to tithe. We'll test that idea this morning. Is it a new covenant idea? Is it a new covenant teaching practice that the new covenant believer is to tithe their income? We'll test that to see whether or not that's true. How many of you have always been taught to tithe? Lots of hands uh, in the church. So we'll test that idea and uh, see if it's biblical, see if it's accurate. And don't take my word for it. We'll walk through some scriptures and just see. And then lastly, I want to I see um, carry over that idea of what, what is the parallel, what is the, what is the carryover or the fulfillment of the old covenant tithing system, temple system, in the new covenant? Is it a one-for-one? One? Is there a carryover? Are we to tithe a tenth? And if so, what does that look like? How do we do that? And how do we please God in that? It, and, and further, what is, 
we do understand the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, all the stories, every aspect of the Old Testament to be a type or a shadow or a prefigure, a foreshadow of the coming Messiah and what the Messiah would do in order to bring about the full redemption and pardon of God's elect. And, and how does that work? What does that look like? And so I'll try to paint as uh, neat and as concise a picture for you as I possibly can. So you guys ready? All right. <clears throat> so before we do that, let's pray and ask God to, to reveal to us his word. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. Lord God, I pray that it would be you and only you that is glorified today or that is recognized today. And I pray against any error, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and it would not turn void. I pray uh, that you would grant us wisdom and insight and that you would grant all of these who are listening to me to be, uh, to be good Bereans, Lord, that they wouldn't take my word for it, God, but that they would check what your word says and that they would understand that your word is what matters and and that's the only authority that we have uh, to teach anyone anything god is is an accurate uh, dividing of your word and a teaching of your word so we pray that that would be what happens and that you would show us your glory in christ's name amen all right (coughs) so let's turn in malachi chapter three we're going to start in verse five which is where i ended last week and uh, somebody, some said I got hot and heavy last week and got a little fast and, and got a little excited. Well, I did because we were talking about the fire of God, and I'd gotten fired up that week about it. And so we talked last week about the fire of God and, and Christ being the messenger of the covenant, also being the refiner and the purifier of God's people, and that he would be manifest in the new covenant. He would be incarnate that he would come and that he would be the fire, that he would be the fire, he would be the refiner, and that he, when he came, would separate the unrighteous from the righteous through his person. And that the Holy Spirit is the fire as well, and that we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who sets apart those who would be set apart, and he does so by imparting the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is how we know whether or not we are the people of God, what we do with the Son of God if we've been born of the Holy Spirit, whether or not we've been consumed uh, with the fire of God. And in so much as that, that He justifies us from our sins and He also sanctifies us uh, from our sins as He purges and burns off those sins as you progressively get closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So Christ is the refiner, and then we move from this this refiner that he is burning away sin, he is separating and and extracting the righteous from the unrighteous by his person. So whatever you do with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how you'll know whether you are righteous or whether you are unrighteous, whether you are saved or whether you are unsaved, whether you are a child of God or whether you are a heathen and an outcast and an enemy of God. The person of Christ determines that if we have faith in Christ or if we do not have faith in Christ. And if we do have faith in Christ, that's how the offering is made pleasant. As we read in verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. And so any people of God that would have a pleasing offering to God must come through faith. And that faith is placed in the Messiah uh, that for them would come, for us has come. And that's how our offering becomes pleasing to the Lord. And then it moves to this this description of judgment and how God or why God is going to judge 
this way and what that looks like. And it lays out this case against the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, Israel, uh, and what their sins were against this good, righteous, holy, and perfect God. And that's where we're going to pick it up in chapter, five, or chapter 3, verse 5. Let's read. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> we'll begin in verse 5. So after he has made the offering pleasing, he says, Then, verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift uh, witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So I stopped in verse 6 because verse 5 lays out five issues that God has taken up with the people that he's speaking to here. The, the prophet Malachi is addressing um, unrighteous, um, disloyal Israelites who put on a good show and who seem to be worshiping God, who seem to be doing things in the right way, at least partially. They were, bring, they were bringing sacrifices. They were uh, bringing partial tithes. They were giving to God, but they were not giving their all to God. They were not giving their best to God. They were not giving themselves to God was the biggest issue. What we see laid out is a hard issue and not so much the specifics of what was being given, although the specifics of what was being given, or rather withheld, identified the true issue of a wayward heart, <coughs> which is laid out here in the Scripture. So there's five things that he has here against the people of God, and there are sorcery, adulterous, liars, oppressors, and pride. And they're not named exactly like that, but I'll show you why I, I had labeled it that way. And then in verse 6, he makes this statement, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, uh, therefore, O children of Jacob are not consumed. Therefore, you, O Jacob, uh, children of Jacob, are not consumed. So God is saying here, all these things I have against you. You have been wayward. You have all these things in your midst. You have all these issues. But even still, the promises of God will not fail. And though judgment comes against you, there will be a surviving remnant. There will be a righteous remnant of the children of Jacob because I never change, says the Lord. Your salvation, your, your um, redemption in the end will not be because you got it right, but it will be because I made a way when there was no way because I have declared it, I have said it, and I will do it. So this is, this is showing us in a, in a, in a way that God is the author of salvation. He spoke it. He will complete it. And therefore, we can trust God. Okay? Now, let's go back just for a moment here with the sorcerers, the adulterers, the ones who swear falsely against the oppressor who hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. We have these sins here laid out. And if you'll notice something here, the first three are more of a personal issue that they were wayward in the way that they were worshiping God. They were wayward in the acknowledgement that they gave God as the one true God, as the author, the creator, the only one true supernatural power uh, that was to be exercised because he alone is good. And so he says here that he says, I will come 
in verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, and then he starts laying them out. I think he's playing on words here. If you remember last week when I talked about uh, this irony in which they, the, the prophet Malachi spoke of them seeking the Messiah or, or the messenger of the covenant and delighting in the messenger of the covenant, the Lord whom you seek. And we said that this had to be a sarcastic play on words going back to verse 17 of chapter 2 in which they supposed and made a statement that God delighted in the wickedness of the people and that they had called evil good and good evil and said that God delighted in the wickedness. And we had said that this is clearly sarcasm where he's saying that the Lord's coming near, you know, the one you're seeking. And he's playing on words here and he's saying, oh, yeah, you, you think that you want him to come. You come with a profession of lips, but your hearts are far from him. You think you seek him, but when he actually comes, you're going to realize that you sought him in vain and that you, he delighted in you or, about, or you delight in him about as much as he delights in the sin as, as you uh, laid against him earlier on in, or later on in chapter 2 earlier in the book. And so here he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. So he's saying, I'm coming. He's already said the messenger of the covenant is coming. He's coming as a refiner's fire. He's coming as a purifier. He's coming in judgment. But that same exact uh, messenger of the covenant, his judgment will also be salvation. For when he purges evil, the righteous remnant will stand, not because of their works done in righteousness, but because of the faith that has been granted to them, not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done, and because God has declared it, and God will save his people from their demise, even in spite of their sin. And he will do so through the messenger of the covenant that will burn away their sin as they accept him, and as the messenger, or my messenger, John the Baptist, who is coming to prepare the way is going to turn the hearts of their fathers back and that he says I baptize you with the water but one is coming that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire and we saw we see that the messenger of the covenant is the one who's coming in fire which will simultaneously be judgment and grace upon grace and loving mercy as never seen before so you see this double-sided coin that the refiner the fire the judgment will also be the salvation and the purification where the offering is made right to God and the, the, the sinner is brought back into the presence of God as one who is redeemed and purified by the blood of the Lamb, by the fire of the Spirit. And so we praise God for that, right? This is a foreshadowing to or a, a picture of pro, a prophetic word here that when he comes, he'll come in swiftness. Now you say, well, it doesn't seem like it was swiftness because, you know, Christ came as the Messiah and then he had to grow up and it wasn't until he was roughly 30 years old before he began his ministry and then he had a, you know a roughly a three-year ministry and at the end of his ministry he uh was crucified on the cross and, and it seemed like it was drawn out for a little while but in the grand scheme of things you need to understand that there was a, a 400 to 450 year of silence that this is the last prophetic word that we're going to get from the old testament prophets the, the prophet the prophets of old that this is the last prophetic word that we would get that there's a there's a my messenger is going to come he's going to prepare the way and when you see him show up on scene just know that the that the, the messenger of the covenant is right behind him and he's going to lay it down and it's going to be judgment and it's going to be righteousness and purification and it's going to be a stiff witness boom he's going to show up on the scene and you're not going to you're not going to know what happened that bam there jesus is and he's not going to come i think that again we can say that this way that he's not going to come in any anticipated 
limited way because though they were told, they just didn't get it. They were looking for a warrior king to come armed with sword and spear and bow on a horse, and he didn't come that way. He came as a lowly Galilean servant who would be crucified at the hands of wicked men. Who would have ever thought it? The Pharisees had it all wrong. But it was taught here they should have known. So he's going to come as a swift, wit, swift witness, and we see Jesus Christ show up on the scene and get things done rather quickly. <clears throat> well, who is he coming against? He's coming against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress. So we see this first, sorcerers, adulterers, and those who swear falsely. And, and maybe even those who swear falsely could be in the second category here. And this is my category. I didn't read this in any commentary or anything. I just see these as let, being laid out this way. But those, so in, in the Old Testament in these times, and this would have been speaking directly to Malachi's audience, that they had all kind of divination. They had all kind of psychics and false prophets and, and sorcerers and witchcraft. And you see this throughout the, the, the Old Testament through, you know, these kings, they wouldn't get a good word from God's prophet. So what would they do? They would drum up a sorcerer who could get messages, but they were always favorable messages that, show, that showed partiality and, show, and told them messages that weren't true. And <clears throat> they was just telling them what they wanted to hear. And they did have some type of power from somewhere, but it wasn't righteous power poured out from God that led to righteousness, but it was always underhanded, backstabbing, secret bribery, and things like that. It was done, it was an antithetical thing done in opposition to the Lord, never in uh, a, a righteous, biblical, God-fearing way. And so basically what he's saying here, it's not just against the sorcerers, but it's against those who would practice going around God to get what they wanted, to get truth that they wanted to hear, supposed truth that they wanted to hear, instead of going to God who is the creator, who is the sustainer, who is the one who has laid out the plan, they wanted another way. In other words, they wanted to exercise the power over the supernatural to proclaim themselves as God. God. So it's an idolatrous pursuit of a wickedness and a demonic power that would elevate themselves over God. <clears throat> and remember, these guys kept asking, how have we wronged you? How have we? They didn't even see anything wrong with it, supposedly. So we have the sorcerers against the adulterers. Now, remember, we already laid out a national adultery and a national whoredom where the people of Israel had intermarried into the surrounding cultures. And the problem with that was not the different ethnicities or not even the different nationalities. The problem with that was that these other cultures served and worshipped other gods. It was the influx of other gods into the righteous, what was supposed to be the righteous and holy nation of Israel, who was to serve the one true God, Yahweh. And when they intermarried into these other cultures, into these other nations, they were worshipping their gods as well. And so that was the problem. And here, <clears throat> and even in, in chapter 3 earlier on, I mean in chapter 2, we do see the individual aspect and specific sin of adultery um, committed by individuals. So we have the national whoredom and adultery committed where they were intermarrying with other um, um, cultures and worshiping other gods and so on and so forth. So they had turned their back on God and they had started to commit idolatry. And also we see the sin of adultery in specific relationships where people were stepping outside of their marriage bed and having sexual intimacy with other women and those women being described as younger and and we talked about how they were more free we talked a lot about that we won't go back down that road 
But the bottom line is that they weren't satisfied with the will of their youth. They weren't satisfied with God. They wanted more. And anytime you want more of, of something and you want it more over and above who God is, and then what that does is it makes, it makes God a secondary God, just another God. And now you have another God. And so what it ultimately does, though, is it's not even about worshiping those other gods, which it is, but that's not the ultimate thing is. The ultimate thing is, is that you only worship other gods other than Yahweh because you want to be God. It, that's, that's what idolatry is. See, they, they serve these false gods because those false gods made promises to build and exalt them. Idolatry is still birthed from pride. You need to understand that. Idolatry is still birthed from pride. And we might get it twisted and think, oh, no, I'm serving another god. The only reason we serve other gods is that we refuse to bow to the one God who claims to be the only God and who is the only God because he won't let us be God. And so we develop and we hew out for ourselves and we carve or whatever, or we turn on our gods because they make us feel good. They, ma- they lift us. They make us feel ecstatic. And every God that you have does that, whether it's the nicest car that you can possibly find that makes you feel amazing. Whether it's the, the you know, video games, they're, they're, they're all designed to give you a, a euphoric experience that they play on, you know, the adrenaline and they play on all of these chemicals. They know how to get the serotonin to come out, you know, the ads, the pornography. It's all about making you feel wonderful and amazing and give you this euphoric. It's all about making you into God and that you get all that you want and it's always your way. Well, moving on, it then moves to this place of not what we are doing with God, but how we are mistreating other people, which is against God as well. And I need to move on past this, but I want to point this out. And I want to say this really quickly. We need to be careful. Now, I know that there's a lot of right-wing people in here, okay? I know there's a lot of Republicans in here. You may all be Republicans. I don't have anything against Republicans, okay? I don't. I don't, put my camp, I don't put myself in the camp of Republican. Some of you might get mad at me because of that. Now, I'm certainly no Democrat. I'm a Christian. And I'm not going to vote for someone because they're a Republican. And we're not going to make this political. But I want to say this because of what's coming next. I'm not voting for somebody because they're a Republican. If I'm going to vote for someone, it's because they line up according to Scripture better than anybody else. Okay? And that's the only reason. <clears throat> okay? If there's a Democrat that lines up better with Scripture, I'll vote Democrat. If there's an Independent, whatever it is, I don't care. I'm going to vote who lines up best with Scripture. That's just the way that it is, okay? There's a lot of things that go in that. Now, why would I even talk about that and tick some of you hardcore conservative Republicans off, right? Well, it's because, one, I've got to preach the whole counsel of God, whether you like it or not. And, two, the text is going to cover something that's going to smack you and us all in the mouth. I want to say this, but I've got to do it quickly because there's other stuff I've got to get to. Check out what it says. The adulterers against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker of his wages. Is that a Republican issue or a Democratic issue right now, at least with talking points? Come on, it's okay. Huh? It's a Democratic talking point. Minimum wage. We're oppressing the workers. They're not getting paid anything. 
Check out the second. The widow and the fatherless. Social programs. It's a democratic talking point. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Anybody know what a sojourner is? It's a stranger. It's a foreigner. Think immigration. Who's making a plea for the immigrants right now? As, at least as a talking point. The Democrat. You know the sad thing is? Is that when I read this and connected them with a Democrat, it's almost like we throw that out. We can't even think about it. We're so responsive. We're so ingrained into our Republican mindset and our conservative mindset that just because a Democrat said it, we can't talk about it anymore. That doesn't really exist. There's no oppression of hired workers. There's no oppression of the fatherless and the widows. Racism doesn't exist. There's no problem with immigration. We need to send them back home. Build the wall. We can't even talk about it because you're so Republican. But has our Republican conservative nature outran our Christianity? People leaving already. <laughs> I put this on Facebook last night. And I don't want to come off with the idea that I'm a Democrat. But I've already told you I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I vote Republican more often just because Democrats are crazy. <laughs> but there's crazy Republicans as well. And let me tell you this. There's wickedness on both sides of the aisle, and the whole system's jacked up. I'm not voting for anybody because they're a great godly candidate. I'm voting for this one or that one because they're the, the least of two evils. Right? But this is what I want to tell you. Neither one of those jokers are ever going to solve the problem. Neither one of them are going to solve the problem. The only, the only hope that we have of solving these issues is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say, though, you need to be aware that you are trigger-happy Republicans, a lot of you. And that you need to slow down a little bit. And just because a Democrat said it, just because a, a liberal said it, doesn't mean that you don't need to slow down and examine to see whether there's any truth to that statement or not. Is there racism? Okay. Is what you've proposed the best way to deal with it? How do we deal with it? I'm on your side. Racism is a wicked evilness that we need to deal with. We just need to ask the question, what's the best way to deal with it? Are the workers oppressed? Some of them, yeah. What's the best way to deal with it? How can I come alongside of you? Is there a jacked up system that keeps the poor down and makes the widow and the orphan suffer? <laughs> Absolutely. Do the Democrats have the answers? Do the Republicans have the answers? Jesus Christ has the answers. It's the gospel. But until you and I start living out the gospel, then we're just over here parroting Republican statements thinking that we're doing something good and righteous and noble and we won't walk across the street and help our brother and sister out who's actually in need. Amen. Give me that junk. That's to me. That's to me. So <clears throat> let's ask the question. 
He's laid out these sins that they've committed. They're not taking care of the poor. They're not taking care of the widows. They're not taking care of the orphans. They're oppressing the worker and taking advantage of them. They're committing idolatry. They've got all of these things going on. And so he's going to lay out a case here of how that's happening. And then, in my estimation, I believe he's going to bring about and lay, uh, lay out a case of how, at least a description of what it's going to look like when it's uh, redeemed and when God is going to fix this problem. Because God's the only one that's going to fix the problem. Amen? God is the only one. Okay, so moving into verse 6 then. I'm moving pretty quick. I'm pretty excited. Maybe sitting down helps me because I don't get all chasing rabbits. God had to break my ankle. I feel like Jacob. <coughs> Except it was his hip. Okay. Verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I believe this is a good transitional phrase here. He's laid out these five sins that he has against them. Uh, this, this great, you know, these are great sins. You know, they are going to other gods. They're, they're oppressing people. And, but then it seems like he comes back here and he says, um, but take courage. Take cart. It's, uh, it's pretty desperate right now, but you need to know that I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the one that is going to make it okay that my, my promises, my plan, my people will not fail, that my promises are sure. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The only reason I haven't killed you jokers yet is because I've got a plan. Basically, that's what he's saying. But think about the great warning that this is too. He's saying the only reason that you haven't been consumed, and John Cal was reading Cal, uh, Calvin's commentary on this, and, and he's pretty good on this. He says that, that the Lord is laying out such an extensive case here, and you're going to see it even develop more, that it's, it's so extensive that there is zero reason, zero reason why God should not consume them with fire right now. The only reason he relents, the only reason he waits, the only reason that he withholds the, the fire and the judgment is because he's got a plan and because he's got a people and because he is sovereign and he will not fail. You see how God's plan, God's salvation, God's um, will, his decrees are sure. They cannot fail. So it's a great hope but also a great warning. He says in verse 7, Here's the, here's the case laid out even more extensively. <clears throat> from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So here is the extensive case made against them. From the days of your fathers, you have not turned aside from my statutes. You have turned aside from my statutes and have, caught, and have not kept them. He's saying that this is always the way it has been. This is always the way it has been, that you have always turned away from my truths. You have always uh, went against me. You have always robbed me. You have, you have always been against and oppressed the workers and the orphans and the widows and so on and so forth, and that you have done this from day one. We see this same teaching laid out in uh, Acts chapter 7, and all, I mean all throughout in many different places, but in Acts chapter 7, this same language is used, Acts chapter 7 verse 51 the apostle says this as he's contending with the Pharisees. And remember, this is 400 years later. Bam, they show up, and it's still the same problem, and it's still 
uh, here laid out in Stephen's speech against those who were about to kill and murder him. <clears throat> he says in uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those uh, who announced before, beforehand the coming of the righteous one. And it goes on to continue on. That their wickedness was perverse. It had always been this way. They had never sought after the Lord. There was a righteous remnant who God had rescued and who God had given the faith and who God had called unto himself. And even them, it wasn't their righteousness. It wasn't their pursuit of him. It wasn't that they sought him, but it was that God's plan was sure and he would secure for himself a people through those that he would set apart and that he would grant faith and that he would continue on in the covenant that he had made made with Levi in the covenant he had made with the people he says here in this extensive case for uh, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside my statutes and not kept them but then he says this beautifully rich gracious gracious thing here he says <coughs> return and I return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts even in the midst of all of the wickedness and all of the rebellion and all of the history of the rebellion in which they had rebelled. They had always resisted the Holy Spirit. They had always resisted the message of God. They had resisted Yahweh. They had wanted another way. And even still, God was persistent in continually going after them, even in the midst of their sin. Let me stop for just a moment and make an application. We are speaking of the... Uh, nation of Israel here, ethnic Israel, who had their own theocracy, their own national system. But this principle carries over today for the New Testament tells us, the New Covenant, the authors say, do not harden your heart as in the days of old, but turn for the day is the day of salvation. And I say unto you out there who have been wayward and you have been gone and, and those online who have not graced the church with your presence, you have loved the things of the world more than the things of God. You have loved your own, uh, your, your own lusts and your own desires and, and, the, and, and the fleeting pleasures of your flesh more than you have the Word of God and being one with God. You have traded in God. But even now, God stands pleading with you to turn from your wickedness, to turn from your sin, and to look on His wonderful face. He stands pleading with you as one standing in the gap, keeping you from dying at the hand of God who is an all-consuming fire. Even as I speak right now, the gospel is proclaimed that Christ has died in your place to pave the road of forgiveness and faith and life. And if you stand before an angry God, it will only be because you spurn your nose, turn your nose up at the free offer of grace over and over and over. And even today, the Bible proclaims to you, return to me and I'll return to you. The book of James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. He is not far from you. He stands at the door and knocks. Behold, if anybody would open the door, I would come in and eat with him, and he with me is fellowship. <clears throat> so this great cry of, of turning, we see in Deuteronomy 28, 
one, it speaks of returning and the great blessing that comes when the people, because there were, there were moments where the people would return, they would, they would repent, they would come back to God, and God would bless them richly, and then they would fall away again. We see this cycle repeated <coughs> over and over and over and over again, and God is so wonderfully gracious. We have this myth that the God of the Old Testament is a mean God who's just nasty and just loves to kill people. The bottom line is, is that every one of them should have been killed a million times. But God is slow. God is slow. He is rich in patience and mercy, long-suffering, sending prophet after prophet. As Acts chapter 7 has told, just told us that they kept on killing until he finally sent his son who they also killed. But it was not for lack of effort on God's part, to extend a hand of mercy. Is God going to once again extend a hand of mercy to you only for you to throw it to the side because you don't need that? Be afraid, old sinner. Be very afraid if you throw, if you throw away the only hand that could draw you up out of the pit. There is no plan B. <coughs> he says, but how shall we return? They don't even think they're gone. You might think they're asking, how can we come back? No. No, that might be the, the way that this text reads because of their translation. What they're really saying is, how can we come back from somewhere if we've never left in the first place? You don't know what you're talking about, God. We're good and righteous. You need to check it. Who do you think you are, oh God? To, to suggest that, that we're in sin. We've been right here the whole time. And I would even suggest, just me speaking here, is that that's an indictment that God was the one that left. We've been here the whole time. Where you been? And God is saying, no, I've been here the whole time. You're the one that left. You're the one that needs to repent. You're the one that needs to return. And might I point out, that if we suggest that God is the one that left and walked away, that we would be calling God to repent. Repentance is a 180 degree turn and to go back the other way. If we suggest, if they suggest, you're the one that left, you need to repent, God. But God is saying, you need to repent because you're walking away from me. They say, how shall we repent? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Okay, so they say, God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. It is unthinkable that man would rob God. And yet you, here you are. You're robbing me. You have left me. You are taking from me. How have we robbed you, God? How have we robbed you? He tells them pretty plainly in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. You see, we need to understand that they were robbing the poor. It's already been laid out in verse 5. They were robbing the poor and the widows and the orphans who they were supposed to take care of. How? By not bringing the full tithe into the storehouse so that the poor and the widows could be taken care of. And God here is saying that 
You're not just robbing them, you're robbing me. So we, when we mistreat those who we should be taking care of, it's not just a mistreatment of another human being. It is a mistreatment of God himself. That we, when we withhold from God, we are not just withholding from those people who we should have been ministering to, but we are robbing God himself. Proverbs 19, 17 speaks of robbing the poor, that when we rob the poor, we are robbing God, that we are doing a disservice to him. <coughs> so I'm running out of time. I want to tell you a little bit about the tithe. It says that you have robbed me in your tithes and in your contributions, and because of that, you're cursed. And lots and lots I've heard <coughs> preachers use this to teach their ch church to tithe, to give 10%. So by the show of hands earlier, what I will suggest to you today is contrary to what you've always heard. Okay? I'm going to suggest to you that tithing is not at all, in the least, a new covenant practice that should be, <coughs> that should be carried out. And I'm also going to suggest to you that it is not what you think it is in the Old Testament. Okay? First of all, there were four tithes, four main tithes that we see in the Old Testament. There was the first fruits tithe, the first tithe, that would be given to the Levitical, the tribe of Levi, that would be given to the Levites. Then there was the Levite tithe, where the Levites would take 10% of the 10%, and give it to the Aaronic priesthood, the priest. And then there was the festival tithes, which there was actually three of those per year, and you would tithe that to yourself. And that tithing would be your own sustenance to make provision for you when you went to the festival gatherings. And then the fourth tithe would have been what James Quiggle, who I've been reading his book, it's really good, uh, titles The Poor Tithe. And this was for the poor, the orphans, the widows, and so on and so forth. This, this tithe was taken two times in every Sabbath cycle. So on the third year and on the sixth year, you would take a poor tithe, and that would be stored in the storehouses to care for the orphans and the widows and the poor and those who could not, uh, who could not fend for themselves. That along with practices such as uh, gleaning, and, and you weren't, if, you, know, if a, you know, if a bundle of corn fell off of your cart and you couldn't pick it up because that was for the the orphans and the widows and those the, the poor they would come on and they would glean whatever they could off the fields after the harvest and so one point is is that it was never 10 percent quiggle points out that the tenth, the tenth okay this word for tenth it really just became a catch-all word that meant the the portion that was to be given to the lord so it could be used in some senses as a literal tenth, but in other places it's referred to in a tithe as just the tithe, just the giving, just whatever you're supposed to be giving. So in the Old Testament, it was never just a tenth. Nobody gave just a tenth. Nobody. But when you add up all of the tithes that were to be given, whether it be the first tithe, <coughs> the Levitical tithe, the festival tithes, or the the poor tithe, it would, and all commentators just about agree on this number, it would be somewhere within 23 to 28% of your goods. 
Okay? So if you want to carry that over one for one and you want to do it the Old Testament way, then you need to be giving 23 to 28%. I'm serious. It's a heart attack. If you want to just have a, you know, a checkbox where you say, hmm, I've given mine this week. I've done what God told me to do. Then it really needs to be more like 23 to 28% of uh, your goods. Now, there's a problem there too. And I didn't know this, until, this actual portion of it until I started studying this, is that there's no monetary tithe in the Old T Testament. There's no monetary tithe. Speaking of currency, all tithes were of goods and animals, uh, harvest, crops. All tithes were crops or animals, oxen, sheep. Uh, this is what the tithe was. And these tithes were to be stored up. You need to understand that, that Israel was a theocracy. And that the religious system of the temple served as the governing body of the nation of Israel. And so the tithe would come in to the storehouse, to the, to the storehouses, to the temple, to the governing body in order to make provision for the governing system, which was the priesthood, and to make provision for those citizens that could not fend for themselves. You know what tithing is in the Old Testament? Taxes. It's taxes. And that's the truth. That the tithe in the Old Testament was very similar to taxes. It was the percentage of your income that you paid to the governing body. Now, I know that might seem crazy in your head because we're talking about the priesthood. We're talking about the temple. We're talking about the religious system. But there was no distinction in Israel. The religious system was the governing body. And the tithe that you paid was to be stored up to, to pay for and make provision for the governing body and the people that could not take care of themselves. And that's why God is saying <coughs> is that you've robbed the poor by not tithing. Why? Because the governing body of that day was the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, that would see to the needs of those that were under their care. This was their taxes. This was their tithe. And this is how they saw to the needs of the nation. But it was all for selfish gain. And they had started to rob God because they didn't want to put in their best. And therefore, the poor and the needy and the orphan and the widow went hungry because they would not tithe because they didn't pay their taxes, because they didn't see to the needs of those who had needs. Now, there's questions surrounding, okay, how many of you have ever heard that before? You have heard it before, hands up. Okay, so either I'm crazy or somebody's not been teaching you all the Bible. I'm glad you're here today. <clears throat> I've learned a lot studying for this. And if you want to prove me wrong, I welcome you to the task. Be a good Berean. And you show me the carryover. Now, I've, I'm so slow. But we still got a little time. So how do we give, preacher? You just shattered my entire method of giving. Let me say with you is that since becoming a believer, my wife and I have always tried to tithe. I didn't know any of this. I didn't know any of this. I did learn this several years ago. And so my thinking on 
why and the, and the nuts and bolts changed. But our practices really didn't change. Before I tell, give you maybe a suggestion, I want to show you that there is a more parallel to new covenant giving in the Old Testament than the tithe. Okay? I would say that by far, I would say that the more parallel to tithing would be Romans 13, pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Okay? But that there is a, a more parallel or a more accurate way to apply giving that, that flows out of the Old Testament into the New Testament. And I think, I think I'll say this. <clears throat> and I heard somebody else say this. I'd give them credit if I could remember who it was. I think it was um, R.C. Sproul. But I don't know. Giving and offering to the Lord has never been out of obligation. Old Testament or New Testament. This terrifies a lot of preachers. A lot of preachers hold to the tithe with a death grip because they think that if you don't obligate the people to give at least 10%, Brandon, then you ain't even going to get nothing. I would just say, yeah, they've got salaries, they've got so on and so forth. But, but I would say, even, even beyond that, you, you miss the whole point. You miss the whole point. And you distrust the power of God to transform the heart. How about this? How about I'll give you an example. Turn in your Bibles with me because I want you to read it with me. Turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 36. Exodus chapter 36. Now, there is another type of giving in the Old Testament. It's called a free will offering. <coughs> it's a free will offering. This was not the tithe. This was the offering that was given just because the people wanted to give. There was no set amount. There was no requirement. There was no obligation. There was a need and there was a people and there was an ask. Whatever you can give, whatever you want to give, give. As much as you want, as little as you want, whatever you are moved in your heart to give, you give that. Now, the fear is that when you do that, you free people to not give at all. But I would just say contrary to that, the Bible seems to, to suggest that when you do that, you free people to give from the abundance of what God has given to them. And if you would take off the obligation and put on the grace, that you would see an increase in your giving. And even if you didn't, you would be teaching the Bible more accurately. And I've told you here from day one that if you don't want to give, don't give. I Have I said that? If you love your money... And you want to hold on to it? Hold on to it. If you need your money, then hold on to it. Heather and I was having a conversation about this last night at dinner. And I told her, I said, if someone makes $500 in a week and they've got a $400, they need to put $400 on their mortgage. 
and they need to buy $50 worth of groceries and they've only got 50 left over and they have a $50 power bill or water bill or whatever and it's going to take every dime that they've got and they're stressing out over it and they've been taught that what God desires is for you to sow that seed and you just trust him. You give to God first and you just trust him and you see, you see if God won't open up the windows. That's this text. You see if God won't meet that need. You give to God first. You don't pay that water bill. That is not biblical teaching. You know what is biblical teaching? Good stewardship and prioritization of your funds. I'll tell you this, and I'm the teaching pastor. I'm one of five pastors of this church. I'm the teaching pastor, and let me tell you this. If you make $500, of it is tied up in your mortgage, 50 of it you have to get groceries and 50 of it to your water bill then yes you give to God first and you know what the first priority that God lays out in his Bible is your family because a man that won't provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever you say well I got to give to to the church because I get to give to God first the church is not God And just as I, as an elder, love you, I don't love you more than I do my family. How many preachers have lost their family because they thought they were serving God by putting the church over their family when God says the church is the, I mean, the family is the priority? Yes, give God your first, but your first is your family. Now, let me say this. That's not to say that you just make excuses and say, oh, i got to buy my family a jet ski. <laughs> I'll say this to that. God knows your heart. God knows your heart. And if you want that jet ski, then go get that jet ski. Go get it. Go get you a dirt bike. Go get you the new Call of Duty. Go get whatever your heart desires. For the out of the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I would say the hands do. All it does is tell on you. Listen, God doesn't need your money. God owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills and a thousand Cadillacs and a thousand garages. God doesn't need your money. You know what your giving is? It's just an evidence of your faith. It's just an outpouring of yourself to God. It is an act of worship. If you want to keep your money, keep it. Now, let me show you in Exodus 36. And let me, you know, some preachers, might, I know some preachers listen to me. You know, I know you're sweating bullets, and I know you're ready to throw your shoe through the, the phone screen. But let me ease your mind. Um, Exodus chapter 2, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 36, verse 2. I'll say this, is that when you open it up for, God, for the people of God now. Now, the unbelievers in the room, I don't, I don't want you to give anyway. That's fine. Just keep that. You know, that's, that's not, there's no reason for you to give. I mean, if you want to give, you don't give, I guess. But there's no, there's no call on you to give. Believers give out of what has been given and their love for God and their desire to see the kingdom grow and, and their desire to make sure that there's enough to, to spread it around. You know, we see this in, in Acts chapter 2. They were selling the things that they had because they didn't care about the things as much as they did about people and about God's people and about caring for others. I would say to the preacher that is scared about this teaching, 
that it will only bring about more in your storehouses than less. And Moses called uh, Bezalel and Ohaliab. Oh, 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 I'm going to name my next kid that. Good thing I'm not having one. Watch the Lord pull a joke on me. I will name him Ohaliab. Heather, I'm, I'm committed. And every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work, his heart stirred him up. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. They had too much. I mean, brother preacher, hey, listen to me. When you've got one system that is twisting a believer's arm and says, you better give at least 10, you better give at least 10. It's like, okay, okay, here. And he gives you 10. You squeezed it out of him. And you've got another system that says, give or don't give. That's between you and God. Give out of your heart, and I'll trust God to fill up the storehouses. And he just goes, bleh, bleh. <laughs> You've got two models. Which will you follow? Now, you say, well, that's an Old Testament text. In my opinion, the free will offering is the closest thing to New Testament giving. Okay? You see this in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 7, if you want to turn there with me or not, I'll just read it. You know the verse. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly, and if I had a bunch more time, we could look at the principle of reaping and sowing and reaping, and boy, that's a beautiful thing. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Uh, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's it. That's it. That's the New Testament teaching. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's it. We should never compel you or, you know, you should never be, you know, reluctant to give and me try to beat it out of you. I've never done that. I've never seen a need to. One, you guys give amazingly. Please don't hear me preaching this morning because you guys need to stamp it up. We have, we have more than enough. We have, as a matter of fact, we're talking, and I'll let you in on this. We're talking and praying, and you can pray with us about bringing uh, Dustin Drake on as a full-time elder because you guys are faithful, and it is so needed. So pray with us. Uh, mainly pray for his wife, Mallory. But we're praying about that. The church isn't filthy, stinking rich, but you guys have been faithful. We could buy the playground out here. We minister to the needs. We put the ramp in at Courtney's house, and that was a blessing for us to be able to do that for her. Why can we do that? 
because you guys are faithful. We pour into Operation Hope. We're able to do these things. Why? Because you guys are faithful. So don't hear me, you know. Again, I say, if you don't want to give, don't give. It's fine. But those of you who love God and you want to give, you're giving like you should be giving. Praise God. And I know that it will only get more and more beneficial to our community, to you, to the lost, to those who we are in mission to. So, um, yeah, that's the New Testament teaching. How many of you uh, are surprised by that? Give out of the joy of your heart. That's it. I think I've provided you with plenty of scripture. You won't show me in the New Testament where New Covenant believers were commanded to tithe like that. Giving, yes. Tithe, no. Okay, so let's move on. Let's, let's, let's talk about here for a second uh, this, I will open the windows of heaven, right? That's a beautiful verse that is straight up ripped out of context by prosperity preachers and teachers who should be like strung up by their toes. Talking granny out of her, you know, her social security check to sow a seed and watch it grow. Just sow a hundred dollar seed today. See if the Lord won't open up the windows of heaven. Pour out on you a Mercedes. <laughs> Let's see what he says. <laughs> Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He levels the whole nation, which does bring it back to the nation. See, this is a national thing he's talking about. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. See, again, it's food. It was never about monetary. That there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil or your, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You said, it is, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of, your, of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Now I read that whole section together because it fits together. You have two different types of testing. You have God saying, bring the full tithe in and test me. Now, how many health, wealth, and prosperity preachers and just average old, average old ordinary preachers, right, like me, that say, see there? That's the only place in Scripture where you're going to see God say, test, test the Lord. That's the only place you can test him. It's just how much you can get out of him if you'll just be faithful in a little. Now, please do not hear me throwing out the principle of sowing and reaping. 
That absolutely exists. Didn't we just read it in 2 Corinthians? He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows abundantly will reap abundantly, right? So we have that principle. But to use this in order to swindle money out of someone is horribly wicked and evil. And I would even say, I wouldn't put it on the horribly wickedly evil part, but I would say misguided to tell even your church people that if you'll tithe 10%, as it says here, then you'll be blessed with material goods and more finances. Now, I do believe that if you're faithful to a little, God will trust you with a lot. So the principle of sowing and reaping remains. I just believe that it's in an unbiblical way when we try to do this through the tithe and through this verse because it's so out of context. Now, let's put it in context. Can we do that? Okay. So what does it mean to open up the windows and a blessing pour out from heaven? Well, <clears throat> just to point out, in Genesis, there is another place where the windows of heaven are, are opened up. So let's look at a little bit of context. Genesis chapter 7. This is what it says. Now, this is a little bit different way of using this phrase, but it tells us what comes out of the windows of heaven, okay? So in Genesis chapter, 11, uh, chapter 7, verse 11, this is speaking of the days of Noah. And it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of, heavens of, the, windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Rain. Say what? Rain. Rain came. Now that rain was in a destructive judgmental way, which this is a side note, you know, no extra charge here. The same rain that falls on the just falls on the unjust. Further, the same rain that falls drowns some people and blesses other people the same refiner that's burning away the sin is revealing the righteousness his own son did you see that you see that that's just that <clears throat> okay he says here and thereby put me to the test says the lord of hosts if i will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need so what's the blessing it's rain this, and remember, what's the tithe? It's crops. It's livestock. It's the agricultural produce of the fields, fruit trees. He's saying that, believe me you, here's the reaping and the sowing. He's saying, believe me that when you are faithful to do what God has called you to do, how God has called you to do it, that you will not be without, but that you will have more than you can hardly understand or, or contain. Now, what I want to show you in just a moment is that while I do believe that the principle of sowing and reaping is effective and real in the physical realm of monetary stuff, uh, food, all of those types of things. I do believe that that principle holds, generally speaking. I don't believe that the ultimate lesson and foreshadowing is in those things. And I'll show you that in just a moment. 
It says here, it says, see, if I won't open up the windows and pour down rain that will water the crops, that will water the trees, that will water the livestock, that they will be plentiful, bountiful. And not only that, watch further. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. It says, not only will I pour out good, nutritious rain on the soil so that they would grow and be nurtured and cared for, but I'm going to keep back the devourer. Now, we know that in another text in Joel chapter 2, verse 22, and go read the whole book of Joel if you want to see more, Joel, if you want to see more about this. But you know what the devourer is in Joel chapter 2? It is locust-type insects that eat and devour the crops. The grain and the, and the, and the, and the crops, the harvest, it, it devoured it. And he says, I won't let your crops fail. I won't let the insects come and eat all of your crops and devour it. I will hold them back. I will keep them from ruining your bountifulness i will keep them from ruining your blessing and your life and your sustenance what he's saying is is that you can never ever ever fail when you are faithful to god because god will see to every need that you have god is not slow god is good and you don't have to worry because god will take care of you now think about what what this is coming out of this is coming out of what he just said about how wicked they were but they were robbing him they were turned to sorcery and and they were calling evil good and good evil and they were practicing all these things they were they were oppressing the workers and manipulating them and using them and they weren't feed, they, they were not taking care of the orphans and the widows which James says is true religion they were irreligious They were false worshipers. They were a false religion. They were God-haters. And God tells them in the first part, if you'll repent and turn to me, I'll turn back to you. He says, stop robbing me. How have we robbed you? By taking my tithes and you're killing my people, that you're hurting me when you're hurting them. And even yet, even yet, if you would just turn, if you would just turn, turn you would see that it's more blessed to be under my care than to try to do this thing your own way you can't understand the blessings that you forfeit when you try to do it your own way you see we want to trust ourselves don't we we want to trust in our own works. We want to trust in our own goodness. We want to trust in our own ability to manage our budget because, you know, I don't know if I got this or that to give. God knows your heart. If you've got the 500 and 400 as mortgage and 50 as food and 50 as uh, water, power, whatever, and, and you really do want to give and you really do, but you've got to take care of your family, the desire of your heart has fulfilled everything that God desired for from you as far as giving goes and he knows that heart he knows that heart he knows the love in that heart and you know what the principle of reaping and sowing would say to me is that 
you were faithful in a little to do what God had called you to do and taking care of your family. He knew your heart and it told on you who you was and that was a born again believer who loved the Lord. And so I would almost guarantee you that the principle of reaping and sowing would bring about the truth that God says, I can trust that guy. Let me give him a little bit more because the Bible says he who is faithful in a little is trusted in a lot. So he's talking about sustaining their life here. He's not talking about giving them all of this Porsches and all of these other types of things. He's talking about taking care of their everyday need. And, and furthermore, I want to point this out. And I, I'm going to go to Jesus and I'm going to be done. It, do, do you pay attention here? I want you to see one thing. And this is where we get it wrong. You, you test any health, wealth, and prosperity preacher by this. The principle of reaping and sowing can be found here, and it can be twisted and manipulated, right, to get you to give me money so that you'll get more money, right, for you. And so, like, if I can talk you into that, right, right, if I can talk you into that, then what I've done is I've essentially talked you in to, to giving me money, so that you'll get money, so that we'll both have what we love. Money. We're revealed in who our God is. But if the truth is, is that if you are faithful to God, God will give to you so that you can give to others. So the money's not the object because you are just a vessel and the conduit through which the money came or the goods, the whatever it might be, the food, the gifting, the anointing, whatever it might be. And so I can say, Keith doesn't, he's proven himself. He doesn't serve two masters. He serves me. He doesn't love money. It's just a tool for him. And so I can be sure that when I give him more money, he's not going to be like, precious you know, my precious, precious. No, that he's gonna be like, he's gonna be like, God, look at this, look at this overabundance of money. What am I supposed to do with this, God? He doesn't love his precious. No, it's, it's. You know, I got all this money, God. I've already paid all my bills. I've, I've done. I've took care of my family. I don't know. Oh, oh, I saw that person. In, yeah, that's what we can do with this, God. We can bless them, God. You say, well, you're just kind of being trying to be a good communicator now it's all in the text what was the whole point of the whole thing you're robbing God by robbing people and if you'll just test me in this I'll open up the windows I'll give you more than you know what to do with why so that you'll have more than you know what to do with and store up in your barns uh, where moth destroys and, and thieves steal no that's stupid he's saying that I'm going to give you an overabundance so that you can take care of my poor people so that you can pay the worker good. So that, you can, so that you can make sure that the widow is taken care of. And the orphan is taken care of. I'm going to give you more so that you can do more. I'm going to give you more so that you can love more. So that you can be a better neighbor. So that you can be kinder. So that you can see to the needs. I'm not giving you more to line your pockets. Any health, wealth, and prosperity preacher that's teaching you if you will just sow into this sow a seed into the ministry and watch God just fill your bank account man come on for real are we doing it for the money 
Is it for the money? Get out of here. So here we see. What? Y'all all right? Amen, brother. We're doing it for Jesus. All right, now watch this. And, and uh, you guys can actually come on up. I'm going to end on this. This is the last point I got. Verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. I feel like I've already covered pretty, pretty uh, extensively verses 13 through 15 as I've went through. The rebuke that they have for the Lord that he wasn't righteous, he wasn't just, that all these evildoers were prospering. And he said, no. If you only trust, if you will only commit your whole being to me, your whole tithe. This is Old Testament language here, speaking to Old Testament Israel, ethnic Israel. If you will be faithful to give as I have commanded you to give, what you'll find is, is that it will go better for you in the land. There won't be the poor among you. There, won't be, there will be more than enough. And we already knew that would be true. In Exodus chapter 36, we read it, right? Is that when, you, when you're faithful, that when you give, then it's taken care of. There wouldn't be. And that's why I go all the way back to the whole Democratic-Republican thing. Do you know, almost every one of those jokers, they don't care about y'all. They don't care about the people. There are some good ones, I'm sure. I'm sure there's like two. Right? There's, there's maybe a couple. I don't know. But do you think that they care about, do you think that they care about, listen, they, they're there for what? Money, power. They will never fix the issues that we see in America or anywhere else. I know that. They don't have the tools. Outside of the gospel, they don't have the tools. So when God says, test me, Test me and see. Bring into the storehouse the full tithe. So here's my application to that. We're not in a theocracy anymore. We're not in ethnic Israel, right? We're not Jews, at least most of us. So what would be the application of this? Check out Galatians chapter 6. I want to show you, I told you a while ago that I would show you what I thought the fulfillment of reaping and sowing. Check out Galatians chapter 6. Six, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, 
and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, God has said, test me in this and see that I won't open up the windows and pour out a blessing on you. But all of this, mind you, we could get caught up in the minute details of the tithing system, the crops, the Levitical tithe, the festival tithes. But let's not forget the immediate context. Let us not forget the immediate context. Chapter 3, same chapter, verses 1. My messenger will come to prepare the way in the wilderness. The messenger of the covenant, behold, he is coming. What did Jesus say? I am the fountain of living waters. Jesus Christ is the water that came down. Jesus Christ is the sustenance in the wilderness that kept them alive. Jesus Christ is the manna. Jesus Christ is the blessing that poured down when the windows of heaven of heaven were opened. Jesus Christ is the one who stops the devourer. Jesus Christ is the one who causes you to be free from your own selfish love and your own self-righteousness and your own self-preservation so that it might free your death grip up off of your food, off of your your things, off of your money. He's the one that fills you so full that you realize that I don't need anything else, that now I can give. It is through the gospel that our heart of stone is removed and it's replaced with a heart of flesh. It is through the gospel that he writes his rules and statutes on our, on our heart and causes us to walk in them. It is our, the new heart. It is the, the heart that is given to us through the new birth, through the personal work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit from which we give. And when we give from that new heart, that regenerated spirit, that, that newness, we give, we give far more than we would when we're obligated. And it's not just money. It's not just food. But it's our whole being that we withhold nothing from God. And we don't sow to the flesh because we don't reap corruption. But we sow to the spirit and we reap eternal life. We walk in the Spirit. We press into the Spirit. We chase after the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know and trust Him that it's not as if the evil prospers and the evil wicked doer prospers. Those who think that God is unjust because the wicked prosper are impatient and ignorant. They just don't realize the grand scheme of things. They just don't realize what's more precious. And that is, I would rather be a beggar in God's house and the steps of God than to dwell into the tents of wickedness. Listen. The test has come. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the fulfillment of all things good. He is the water that came down from heaven. He is the manna that came down from heaven. 
He is the forgiveness. He is the fulfillment. He said, I came that your joy might be filled up full. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. But in Christ, you're unstoppable. Let's all stand to our feet and give glory to God. And we'll take up another offering when we're done. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, give yourselves wholly to Christ today and watch Him transform your life. And watch and see if He doesn't open up the windows of heaven. And see if you're not filled up full of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the true blessing. Amen? Amen. Do business with God.